Let's pray. Father, as we turn to your word, we recognize that you are here long before we arrived in this place, that you uh, were present and you are here now. And by your spirit, we pray that you would be our teacher, that you would open our hearts and our minds to, to know your will, to respond to it, Lord. Break through the barriers of sin and stubbornness that we put up, Lord. Um, we ask that you'd be gracious to us in this time. Be glorified, Lord, in this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's, it's important that you, when you approach somebody, that you approach them appropriately, that you approach them with the correct greeting. And in different places in the world, there's different customs of how it is appropriate to greet. There are some uh, very traditional cultures that might be very different than our own, uh, that have different customs. And to avoid any embarrassment or awkwardness, I'm going to share with you some of these. So when you're traveling in New Zealand and you come across the uh, Maori people, they have an ancient tradition where they greet each other by touching noses to one another uh, and even um, rubbing noses together. just want to let you know that so you're prepared for it and you, don't, you avoid any embarrassing accidents. I encourage you to keep your eyes open when somebody greets you this way so that you do not miscalculate the distance uh, and, uh, or, or, yeah, for any rather awkward moments there. Uh, next time you're traveling in Tibet, you may come across some people. This is actually a, a custom that would be rude in most parts of the world, but in certain parts of Tibet, it would be customary and polite to stick out your tongue at somebody when greeting them. It stems from a tradition of an evil king uh, in the, I believe the ninth century. There was an evil king, and the, the fear was that he uh, would be reincarnated, but he was known to have a black tongue. So if you stick your tongue out to somebody and they see that your tongue is not black, then you'll be greeted warmly. I would encourage you in that case not to eat licorice before greeting someone so as not to be misunderstood as a reincarnated evil If you have the privilege to travel to the Polynesian island of Tuvalu, uh, the, they have a, a great tradition where they greet one another and you press faces against each other and you take a nice sniff in, a big... Just you're, What you're doing is you're taking in the essence of the other person in their presence and you just give a nice breath. So just be careful what you eat before you do that kind of a greeting as well. Wouldn't eat onions on the airplane or... I, I don't recommend that anyway, but um, if you're traveling in Kenya and you come across the Maasai tribe, uh, you may be very excited and you might, you might be very, uh, feel very welcomed when they do their great welcoming dance for you. And all the men of the tribe, the great warriors, will do a, a great dance and they will uh, take turns jumping into the air. And the higher they jump, the more it demonstrates how powerful they are and how mighty they are as warriors. And you're going to feel very excited and welcome until they hand you a cup of milk and cow's blood, which is a gift to you to drink because you are their guest. And so be prepared for that one. Uh, the question this morning then is, how do we approach God? Like what's the pro what, on what ground? You know, how, do I, how do I do this? What's appropriate? I don't want to be caught in a embarrassing situation. There's essentially two main approaches throughout time that people have used approaching God. 
On one end of the spectrum, I'll call it the traditional approach. It's based on the belief that God is somehow angry or unpredictable and that I need to clean myself up. I need to uh, do the right rituals, the right deeds, the right sacrifices to approach this God. And somehow, if I do all that right, this God will accept me or hear my prayer or respond to me in some way by earning his favor. So that's sort of our ancient traditional approach. There's a more contemporary approach on the other end of the spectrum that believes, you know, God is a spiritual force that I can, ta- I can tap into anytime I want. I can turn it on and off. It's just, there's no questions asked. I just, I tap into God's essence and I tap out of it. They, there might be some spiritual practices that help me to experience that better, but uh, really, on my terms, no questions asked. Jesus came to this world to establish a new kingdom. And we see in Mark chapter 7, this scripture that we're looking at this morning, two very different approaches to the king, how to approach the king. And uh, the hope this morning is that you would see how we might approach God. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you are a Christian, you know that we can have and that we desperately need a vital connection with our Lord. And that we approach God on his terms, not our own. And I, and I pray that as we look at this, we might see what are God's terms of engagement here. If you're not a Christian this morning, or if you're just seeking to understand this in a different way, my hope for you is that you might understand that you can seek and approach and be greeted even by the Lord of the universe, that you might know that even better today. So let's take a look at this this morning. The first approach to God we see from this woman in Mark uh, chapter 7. Now, Jesus is traveling to the vicinity of Tyre, so he's traveling north, and he's traveling out of Israel. He had been ministering to the Jewish people. He's demonstrating his kingdom. He's explaining about this, this new kingdom, that the kingdom of God was at hand. And he just had an interaction with the religious leaders, a group called the Pharisees. And they asked Jesus, how come your disciples don't follow the rules? How come they're not washing the way that the elders, the the religious elders teach to wash? And why are they not eating the foods that we, that, that are designated to eat? And they are approaching Jesus in a way that is sort of that old, the traditional view, that if I eat the right foods and I wash a certain way that I will somehow be acceptable to God. And Jesus told them, essentially, you can wash all you want on the outside. What God cares about is the heart. It's not what you put in your body that makes you unclean. It's what's coming out of you. And that's the important piece. And it's created a little, it's created a, not a little, it's created a major conflict between Jesus and some of the other religious leaders. So he leaves town. And he's, he's getting some space, getting away from where he's so well-known. Perhaps he needs rest. Perhaps he is seeking to teach his close disciples uh, in more specific things and needs more time with them, but getting away from the crowds. And here he's, uh, he's in a, a, a non-Jewish region. This is a Gentile region. And this woman approaches Jesus. Now, this woman has no business approaching Jesus. And we see three reasons why right here in verse 26. First of all, she's a woman. Jesus was a a male, a teacher, a rabbi. 
a, a female has no business approaching this teacher because women were, were seen it w- would be a waste of his time to engage or to approach or to teach or to help this woman in any way. Secondly, she's, she's a Gentile. She's not even a Jew. So she was seen just by nature of being Gentile that she's unclean. So she's a woman. She's unclean. And thirdly, she has a daughter at home who is possessed by a demon. So her family is essentially cursed. So this curse is on her family. So she's, a, she's female. She's unclean with, with a cursed family. She has no business to approach Jesus, who's trying to get away and be with his disciples. She has these three strikes against her, but this outcast is bold. And she goes to Jesus seeking healing for her daughter. Why is she so bold? She's so bold because she's a mother. And when you're a mother and your child is sick, you will do anything. You will cross any line, any help that you can get. You are just desperate for your child to be healed. And you see just the heart of a mother who is desperate, who, who crosses all these social boundaries to plead with Jesus that her daughter might be healed. What a beautiful faith that is. What if more people had the faith to just boldly approach God for healing and for restoration and on behalf of others and on behalf of loved ones and children? That's beautiful faith. That's, what we're ta- that's when we baptize these children. We're approaching God on behalf of these children. I think, I think you know, people name churches St. Paul or St. Andrew. I think we should name a church the Church of the Syrophoenician Woman. That's kind of a strange name. I don't know if there is a church of the Syrophoenician Woman. And I like the name Free. That's a good name. It's easier to spell than Syrophoenician. But which helps me, but uh, the, the heart of that church to boldly approach the Lord on behalf of those we love. What a beautiful community of faith that would be. So this woman approaches Jesus, but look at Jesus' response. Verse 27, and this is where this gets a little strange. Jesus says to her, first let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. He's saying that his blessing, the bread, isn't meant for dogs. He essentially calls this woman a dog. And for a Jew, to call a Gentile person a dog was very common then. It is a very dismissive and negative response that Jesus gives her. It's, It's offensive, essentially. He has no intention of helping her from this response. It's... You know, calling someone a dog, that's an epithet, even in Jesus' day. He, and he uses a word that is not you know, your mangy wild dog. It was more the word for pet dog, but it's still a pretty offensive word to call this woman dog. And some people read this, they say, well, Jesus was racist, or he was uh, certainly you know, ethnocentric and, and upset by this. And it is Kind of shocking, you know, how do we deal with this kind of a statement from Jesus? Three things to keep in mind. One is that we are hypersensitive to this type of language, where one person would refer to another person just because of the people group and their culture, you know, by a name. Uh, In Jesus' day, it it wouldn't be quite so shocking. And we live in a world that we, we believe that all people are equal. 
and that the equality of all people, regardless of your cultural background, they didn't believe that. Jews and Gentiles did not see each other as equals. They didn't, so they wouldn't be shocked to hear a Jew use a word like dog to describe a Gentile. And, and remember that Jesus is ushering in a kingdom. This whole idea that we believe that all people are equal, that's Jesus' idea. He's the one who established a kingdom where we know there is no Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free. We are all one in Christ Jesus, as the Christians, the early Christians taught. He's the one bringing into the world that's divided in all these ways to bring unity to a divided world. So this is Jesus' kingdom, and he's ushering that in, but not yet. So it's really not that shocking to hear this, it, but to us it is. But the second thing to keep in mind is what Jesus said is true. He's saying the blessing that he was bringing really was for the Jewish people first. And it wasn't just for them. There was always a trajectory of God's blessing in the world that was beyond any people group. It wasn't just for the Jewish people. It was, it was to them so that they might be a blessing to the whole world. From the time of Abraham right through, that's God's pattern. But there is an unfolding of the kingdom, a progression of the kingdom, by which he, in essence, was not sent directly to the Gentiles. So there's truth in it. But even if it was less offensive then and somewhat true or completely true, it's still harsh. It's still, it, it's still harsh language. So the third thing, third thing to keep in mind is Mark could have left this out. He didn't have to include this in his gospel, his, his account of the good news of Jesus. If it was really offensive or if it was really uh, evil or mean, he could leave this account out. It doesn't have to include the story of this woman. So something else is going on here. What is going on here? We see it in this woman's response. Look at verse 28. Lord, she replies, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. This woman is so desperate. She will not take no for an answer. And she has this boldness to answer back to Jesus, who says this, you know, the bread isn't for the dogs. And she said, even just a crumb of your power, even an ounce of your grace for my daughter will be enough. And Jesus is pleased with her response. And he helps her. Verse 29, he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found her daughter lying on the bed. The demon gone. What's going on here? Jesus doesn't lose this debate. He doesn't say, no, I'm not going to help you. Okay, you're so witty, you persuaded me. He's, he's happy to be defeated in this argument. Because Jesus is drawing out this woman's faith. Her deep faith in the king. I was trying to think of a way to visualize this or illustrate this. And... Um, I'm not even sure this is a great illustration, but I tried it on my children, and they said it was appropriate. So <laughs> here you go. The 1971 classic film, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. There's that scene at the end of the movie, and it's not in the book. I double-checked. But there's the scene where all the other children had made all their errors, and the tour of the factory was over, and they're leaving. And Grandpa Joe goes to Mr. Wonka. He says, Mr. Wonka. 
And Wonka says, I'm extraordinarily busy, sir. And Grandpa Joe says, I just wanted to ask about the chocolate, the lifetime supply of chocolate for Charlie. When does he get it? He doesn't. Why not? Because he broke the rules. What rules? We didn't see any rules, did we, Charlie? And Wonka gets angry. He says, wrong, sir, wrong. Under Section 37B of the contract signed by him, and he goes in and gets the contract, and he's explaining the contract. He says, it's all there in black and white, clear as crystal. You stole the fizzy lifting drinks. You bumped into the ceiling, which now has to be washed and sterilized, so you get nothing. You lose. Good day, sir. You're there in the movie? You've seen this? <laughs> Grandpa Joe says, you're a crook. You are a cheat and a swindler. And I'll pause there. Is Wonka a crook, a cheat, and a swindler? Is Wonka an evil person? No. In fact, Wonka is about to give a blessing, is about to give uh, a gift to Charlie and his family that's greater than they even could ever imagine. But here, Grandpa Joe says, you're a crook, you're a cheat, and a swindler. But just before they're about to leave, Charlie reaches in his pocket and he takes out his everlasting gobstopper and he places it right on the desk. And Wonka says, so shines a good deed in a weary world. Charlie, my boy, you won. You did it. You did it. I knew you would. I just knew you would. And here a desperate woman approaches Jesus seeking healing for the daughter, and he says, I can't give to a dog what is meant for a child. And she said, even just a crumb of your grace. Jesus is not being mean or evil or racist. He's drawing out this woman's faith. And this is a very important step that Jesus is making here in demonstrating that this kingdom is not just for the Jews. That it's for all the nations. This is, this is a major moment. It's, this is, and he's highlighting the tension between groups that he's seeking to reconcile. But look at her approach to the king. It's her approach to the king that we can learn from. Her approach is this. I do not deserve your grace, but it's my only hope. Yes, I am unclean, but if I could just take a crumb of your grace, that will be enough, and there is enough abundance of your love and your power that even the smallest amount will be plenty. That's a good approach to the king. I am unworthy, but your grace is sufficient. She's not approaching the king because she has done the right things, because she somehow deserves it, but because she doesn't deserve it is relying only on his goodness that she was desperate for. The good news of Jesus Christ is that we are all sinners. We are, in, we are on no status to approach the God of the universe in any way at all. Yet we are so loved by the God of the universe that we can boldly approach him seeking his grace in even the smallest amount of his grace is sufficient to save and bring new life. Praise God. That's the, that's the first approach. Now, in a very different way, we have another approach here. The first approach is 
is, uh, I'm unworthy, but your grace is sufficient. This approach is a little different. Look at verse 32. Some people brought to Jesus a man who was deaf, could hardly speak, and they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. What's the approach here? The approach here is, I am helpless. I don't even know how to approach Jesus on my own. But Jesus knows the need, and he reaches out with healing. If you are here today, and you're saying, yeah, you know what, I need God's grace, I need his healing in my life, but I don't even know where to start. I don't know how. The good news is God knows that you need that healing. And he's reaching to you with his grace in your helplessness. And do not leave here this morning without putting your faith in him. I invite you at the end of the service, we'll pray up front. You can come forward and pray and receive that grace because he reaches with his grace into our helplessness. And look at how Jesus reaches into this man's life. Look at how he heals him. In case there's any thought that Jesus is mean, Jesus is harsh or evil, look at how Jesus deals with this man. Verse 33. Jesus takes him aside, away from the crowd. Jesus puts his fingers into the man's ears. He spit and touched the man's tongue. And he looked up to heaven. And with a deep sigh, Ephatha. Be opened. You'll notice that this healing is, is deeply personal. And Jesus gives this deaf man personal attention, takes him away from the crowd. He's not an object lesson. He's not just a demonstration of power. He is someone who Jesus loves and desires to heal. Takes him aside. And not only is it personal, but he's close. It's proximal. Jesus gets up and close, and he's... Again, does Jesus need to put his fingers in this man's ear and, and touch his tongue? Jesus doesn't need to do that. Jesus is not doing that for his own benefit. Jesus just healed a girl who he didn't even see. Jesus can heal from a distance. He's doing these things. What is he doing? He goes up to the man. He's touching him in his ears. He's, he's touching his mouth. He's, he's looking to heaven. He's sighing. It's sign language. He's not, Jesus isn't doing it for himself. He's doing it for this man because he's, he's deaf and he's mute. It's for him. It, it's, a, it's a visual demonstration of what Jesus was doing because he couldn't just say, this is, what this is what is happening. And he gets close to do that. What a difference in these two healings. One, Jesus is almost harsh. The other one, he is so tender. Jesus knows what you need. Whatever your need is, whatever your hurt is, he knows you and he knows what you need and he will treat you accordingly. He's the wonderful counselor. So it's personal and it's close and it's worshipful. Here's Jesus looking up to heaven, demonstrating this isn't just about me healing you here, but this is about the God of the universe unfolding something even greater than you can imagine. And there's an interesting connection here, a, a textual connection. The word that is used to describe this man in the Greek is this word, uh, he could hardly talk, this word hardly talk. That we only see that word one other place in Scripture. 
in the, in the Greek Old Testament from the prophet Isaiah is the only other place we see this. Hear this, this is Isaiah 35. It says, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with a vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the mute tongue, that's that word, the tongue that can hardly speak, will shout for joy. And water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. It's a beautiful picture of God's saving work. When the kingdom comes, this is what it's going to look like. So now when Jesus heals this man, he's looking to heaven, pointing to the unfolding of God's promises in the world, his saving work in the world. God has come just as he promised. So this healing is worshipful. And lastly, it's compassionate. You know, Jesus with this great sigh of compassion. Notice, too, the role of the friends here. This man is helpless, but his friends point him to Jesus. And Jesus, with his compassion and his healing, heals, heals the man's life. Jesus can have that kind of compassion because he knew what it was to be human. He took on human flesh. And here he is, trying to get away, trying to get rest, and more people seeking him and seeking his healing and his time. He knows the human condition, and he came and walked where we walked, and he ultimately showed his compassion to us as he goes to the cross. He takes the punishment for our sin and brokenness on himself, and he dies in our place, taking it on himself, knowing the experience of God's wrath against him, yet rising to new life, that we might have new life in him, that we might have forgiveness of sins because he's paid for it. He came and he walked and he served and he can have compassion on all of us because he knows. When we receive that compassion, we can do the same thing. We can minister with that same, the, the same comfort that we've received. We can minister to the world around us. And sometimes we go through troubles and we go through trials and we don't know why. Why, God, won't you just heal me? Why, why do I have this struggle? Why do I have this hurt? Perhaps it's that you might gain compassion for other people who hurt like you hurt. If you suffer, you can be close to those who suffer. If you suffer illness, if you suffer loss of a loved one, if you watch a business fail or you watch a relationship fall apart, you have walked through that. That you might sigh with other people. Comfort them. Scripture says it like this. 2 Corinthians 1.4 God comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort that we ourselves have received from God. On the front lines of your life this week, wherever God places you, wherever God calls you this week, you will encounter people who are hurting, who are struggling, who are suffering. And God just may be using your struggles and your suffering to be a comfort to others. He's comforted us that we might be a comfort to others. And Jesus totally identified with us on the cross as he bled and died on our behalf. So there's two good approaches to God. Approach number one, I am not worthy 
but I trust in your abundant grace, even a crumb of your abundant grace. And the second approach is this, I'm helpless, but you know my needs and you reach out to me with your healing touch. And as we approach the king and as we receive that grace, we receive his healing so we can comfort others with the same comfort that we have been given. Amen? Amen.